Hey everyone, I'm Ian DeBorha, and welcome to Rice for Breakfast, a podcast about Asian Americans and pop culture. Once again, thanks to everyone who listened and shared the first episode of the podcast. Um, I've been hearing really great things from people, so I'm glad that at least for now, you all like what I'm doing. Last week, I asked listeners to rate and review the podcast, uh, and so far we've gotten 20, as of right now, 20 reviews and ratings, which is awesome. Um, so if you've taken the time to do that, thank you so much. It, it really does help. And here are some of the reviews we've gotten so far. Uh, from 1PB, they say, a very refreshing and eye-opening perspective about an underrepresented community. I learned so much, not just about Asian American culture, but also about how American history is being shaped by Asian Americans. Um, so thank you, 1PB. And from Jobadiah25, this podcast shines a light on a group of Americans that tend to go unnoticed because we often assume they have it easy and are born into success. I can't wait for the next episode to come out so I can dig deeper into understanding issues that affect Asian Americans and discover more ways they're represented in pop culture media. So thank you, Jobadiah25, as well. Um, please keep those ratings and reviews in, and I'll continue to read reviews uh, on, on new episodes. In pop culture news... Uh, more from Crazy Rich Asians, it actually maintained its spot at number one in the box office with another $25 million, which is amazing. Uh, more amazing, though, is that it only dropped 5.7% in ticket sales from week one to week two. Um, that dr little of a drop is actually almost unheard of, and it's one of the lowest drops of all time. So that shows people uh, heard about it from their friends, word of mouth, and uh, continued to want to go. So that's that's really amazing. Um, continuing the so-called uh, Asian August that people have been saying in film is the release of Searching, which is directed by Anish Chaganti and starring John Cho. The film is a mystery thriller all told from the perspective of a laptop. Uh, it's a little bit hard to describe via audio, but definitely watch the trailer. Again, it's called Searching uh, and it released earlier this week. The film currently has a 7.6 out of 10 on IMDb a 93% rating on Rotten Tomatoes and received high praise and an award at Sundance Film Festival. So um, definitely go check it out if you have some time this weekend or at least watch the trailer so you can kind of get the sense of what it's about. This week's guest is Connie Wang, who is a senior features writer for the website Refinery29. I initially reached out to her when I saw an article she wrote about cultural appropriation, and uh, I was lucky enough to have her come on as a guest. So the first half of our conversation is all about Connie's life uh, that led her to where she is today. We start from why her parents moved from China straight to Nebraska, uh, how she grew up obsessed with the internet and blogged uh, about Apollo Ono, um, how she ended up going to UC Berkeley only to immediately change her major in the first semester and so forth. After that, we really dig into some of the pop culture articles that she wrote about, such as one on Sex in the City, um, the difference between homage and cultural appropriation in fashion and music, and uh, the great Anthony Bourdain. For context, I actually have to record these episodes pretty far in advance, so I have some runway. And we recorded this episode um, a couple days after Anthony Bourdain had passed away, so in case people get confused on how we're speaking um, about him and his death. Uh, it was a great episode, really insightful and very fun. Um, Connie's personal history goes full circle from where she started off and where she is today and it's really interesting so I hope you enjoy it you can follow me on Twitter at at rice breakfast you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash rice for breakfast pod and you can go to riceforbreakfast.com for more ways to listen so thank you so much for listening and don't forget eat your rice for breakfast
Connie, how's it going? It's going really well. Thanks for having me, Ian. Of course, of course. How's your weekend? Uh, very relaxing. I think I OD'd on sleep. No, there you go. Good thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, yeah. And you're over in New York, right? I'm in New York. Yep. I live in Brooklyn. Work in Manhattan. Oh, nice. How's that? Uh, how's that? Do you like that, doing that instead of living in Manhattan? Yes. I lived in Manhattan for a long time, and it's nice to have a place to go home to, you know? Yeah, it yeah. feels like a, like a, <laughs> a civilized home. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so before New York, where were you, or how did you end up there? Yeah, um, I've been living in New York for nine years now. Um, I went to school in Berkeley uh, in Northern California, but I grew up in Minnesota. Um, and I spent the bulk of my childhood in Minnesota, but my family moved around quite a bit um, to follow my dad as he went to school and uh, postgraduate stuff. Um, yeah, I lived in Alabama before that and then Nebraska before that. And I was born in China, um, but immigrated when I was two. So my memory, my memory of China is <laughs> not so great. <laughs> uh, so what did your what was your dad studying or what was um, yeah, you know, what were his he, classes for? He was uh, going to school for electrical engineering um, and was one of, I would say, probably an early wave of people, um, uh, students were um, allowed to study outside of mainland China um, in the mid to late 80s. And so he immigrated with a ton of other like-minded people just to go to, to school in the United States for the first time. Um, and I, never, I don't think their intention was to stay. Um, but, you know, after, you know, my mom came to visit, you know, Tiananmen Square happened, um, they saw the opportunities, um, you know, that they, that they could access in the United States. And they called my grandparents, had me shipped over too, and then they <laughs> decided to just make America their home. And I'm so, so happy that they did. So where did he move to first or and your mom first when they uh, decided to stay here? Yeah, they moved to Lincoln, Nebraska um, to attend the University of Nebraska. Um, I don't think he knew where Nebraska was. Um, he, I think he was accepted to a couple of universities, and I, he really just picked the one that gave him um, you know, the, the biggest scholarship, the most resources, without any sort of consideration to, to where it was. And right. I think he got to Nebraska and was like, huh, America <laughs> does not look like the it pictures. looks in the movies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I think we had a, you know, I, I don't remember much um, from my, my childhood in Nebraska, but, you know, we were surrounded by a lot of other immigrant um, families, young immigrant families, um, and felt, I think, pretty supported there. Um, and, uh, you know, for my mom especially, who, you know, came over, uh, her background is in book publishing which is a skill that obviously doesn't translate when you move uh, uh, to different languages, you know. Um, so she, you know, uh, I think was waitressing for a bit, uh, was, you know, staying home with me and my sister, um, and then decided to get her associate's degree um, later on. But it was a pretty, you know, traumatic transition for her, especially. Um, but, you know, I think Nebraska uh, might not be the most exciting place in the world, but it was a soft landing for them. You said younger sister, right? Yeah. So my younger sister is four years younger than I am. So she was born um, in Nebraska. Okay, yeah. got it. So what are your, what are your first um, memories? Is it, it was Nebraska your first memory or the city you moved after that, Minnesota? I have very small, like tiny memories of Nebraska. Um, most of it was really wonderful, though. Um, I think the community that we lived in was fairly safe. Um, and so me and the other neighborhood kids would, were just free to roam around outside. Uh, we got into a lot of trouble. Um, 
so I remember, you know, uh, you know, just playing with them on the playground, going to the nearby like abandoned railroad yards and playing there, building forts with like scrap lumber and stuff like that. I remember stepping on a big nail when I was maybe four and having to go to the hospital for the first time and <laughs> to get this nail removed from my foot and be like, I do not like the hospital. <laughs> um, and how old were you until you um, left Nebraska? I was five, I believe. Um, five when we moved to Alabama. Um, my dad was doing postdoc um, at Tuscaloosa in the University of Alabama. And it was the same sort of situation. We were surrounded by, um, you know, some like a similar um, Chinese immigrant families with young kids. Um, and I went to school, public school there. Um, and we stayed for three, four years um, before moving to Minnesota eventually. So what was it like growing up in Al or your, for your time in Alabama? Do you have any strong memories while you were there? Uh, I know you, you just said you grew up with immigrant families as well. So was that helpful when you were going to public school there? Um, you know, the, it, we did not go to the same school. And I remember my public school being really, really crowded um, to the point where there was uh, not enough classrooms to hold us all. So my classroom actually in first grade was held in a trailer um, in the school's like uh, in the school's lot. Um, and these these trailers were they accommodated maybe like 20, 25 kids. Um, and I mean, I had a great time, but it, I just remember like if it was raining or whatever, we would have to walk outside of our trailer, like the the rain on the tin roofs, which sound really, sure. <laughs> it was really, really loud in there. Um, but, you know, predominantly my classrooms are pretty diverse. You know, it was uh, a lot of black and brown um uh, students. Um, there were some Asian students, not too many. Um, but in our neighborhood, it was a pretty mixed. Um, I, I mean, as far as I can tell, as like a five-year-old. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> you know, um, it felt very diverse to me. Um, looking back on it, much more diverse than Minnesota ever was. Oh, okay. Uh, did your mm -hmm. parents like Alabama? Did they enjoy their time there? I think they liked it fine. I think it might have felt a little bit more cosmopolitan than Nebraska, even um, just because we were in a bigger city, Tuscaloosa. Um, and my dad was, you know, he was doing his postdoctorate uh, work and earning a little bit more money. My mom was going to school and my grandparents are at, actually out here, um, okay. out there, um, you know, uh, taking care of us, uh, me and my little sister. Uh, my sister actually, when she learned how to speak English or, or when she learned how to speak, she had this incredible Southern drawl that she didn't get rid of <laughs> until much later. So <laughs> this tiny little human with this fake, fake Alabama accent. That's funny. That was, it was pretty adorable. <laughs> um, when did your grandparents come over? Um, my, my grandparents only came to visit for, I think their visas allowed them to stay for two years at a time. Um, I might miss remembering, but so my, my grandma came for two years and then went back and then my grandpa came for two years, um, and then went back uh, to China. So, um, I have really, really fond memories of, you know, growing up with my, my grandparents right there, which is such, so nice and so lucky. Um, and, uh, since then, I think, you know, we've tried to go back to China to visit them. Um, at least once every two years. Oh, wow. That's great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to go more um, as I've grown up um, as, as an adult um, and have more money to spend <laughs> on things like that. Um, but, you know, when I was a, a, when we were kids, like that was a really important thing for my parents, like to to go home as often as possible and, uh, you know, expose us to what China's like, too. Right. Yeah. I, I used to go to the Philippines um, a lot when I was a kid. That's where both my parents' families are from. But 
yeah. I, I stopped. I went definitely would started going. I mean, went way less from when I was like middle to school through high school, but then I went again mm-hmm. um, not too long ago. And it's, I mean, it's, it's it's a completely different experience going back when you're an adult and you 100%. Know, especially a, a country like the Philippines where um, it's you know the economy and the social system is so different than the states mm-hmm. that um, you know when I was there, kind of just obviously remembered you know, my family's houses and stuff like that. But then going back and you really get to see sort of the disparity is, is pretty, um, is, is a pretty big culture shock, but, um, I mean, oh, it's yeah. really amazing going back. Yep. Yep. And you know, it's the more you travel to within America and outside of America and be able to contextualize the places that you grow up with how other people live, like then going back to seeing your parents' hometowns and then like, Oh, you understand things in a way that you just, I mean, doesn't even make any sense when you're a kid. <laughs> Yeah. When you were growing up, did your parents uh, were the, did you have a pretty traditional um, household? Like, did you eat um, Chinese food on the uh, regularly, or yeah. did you do Chinese New Year and things like that? Um, you know, when we moved to Minnesota, we. I mean, I think this is a thing with a lot of new immigrant families. Like, you come without a big support system. Um, my my family on both sides of my uh, my parents, like they're fairly large families. Um, but when we came to the United States where we were like an orphan family, um, it was just us like as an Island that existed in the middle of a lot of Caucasians. Um, <laughs> and not to say that my dad and my mom, they didn't have a uh, good friends who were in Minnesota who are, um, also, uh, Chinese, but it, it really did feel like it was, it was us against the world, um, in many ways. Um, and yeah, no, we, we had as a traditional sort of an upbringing as, um, as people probably would expect. We, we ate Chinese food for most meals. Um, you know, we spoke Chinese at home, um, not, <laughs> which makes it sound like my Chinese is better than it is, but I, I'm not, not really. Um, and I they taught your they, little sister too? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So actually her Chinese is better than mine. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we, yeah, no, we grew up in a fairly, uh, like we grew up in a culturally Chinese family. Um, but you know, my parents to have left China meant that they were not that traditional, you know, they really did see a lot of, um, you know, of themselves in America. Um, Mm -hmm. especially for the time, right? I mean, you said eighties, so very different. Yeah. Um, I don't think that they would consider themselves political. Um, but you know, their actions really, really the way they think about certain things and their, their ideologies and the way that they see the world is very political. Um, uh, and I feel like the things that they value, you know, make, make, made it easier for them to get ahead in America versus in China. So in, in those ways, um, it might not have been the very stereotypical Chinese um, upbringing <laughs> yeah. um, in that, you know, like they, they really did value education. Like me and my sister always had to finish our homework before, you know, before going to bed, like that was sure. non-negotiable. Like we were expected to know like the year above ours, like um, math um, <laughs> my parents can really help us with reading, but like we were expected to study ahead. Um, but beyond that, they let us play, you know, there, there's always time to like, play and play really hard and get into like a lot of trouble um you know they never really said that like you know girls should be doing certain things boys should be doing certain things they're like whatever you want to do as long as there's an outlet for it like go do the thing you know um and I always felt really supported by my parents to you know explore the interests that I had um Mm -hmm. to spend my time doing the things that I wanted to do um 
So it maybe in that way, I don't want to generalize or stereotype, but no, like yeah. maybe weren't the most traditional Asian parents um, or Chinese parents, especially considering the other families that I grew up around seeing the sort of pressure on kids to, um, you know, go into maybe STEM fields mm-hmm. or not not playing sports and like investing their extracurricular activities and more um, academic p- pursuits mm-hmm. or indoor kid pursuits, you right. know. Um, Kumon. Ku- oh, my gosh. You don't know. My dad owns a Kumon <laughs> Learning Center now. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he does. He does. That's amazing. Uh, he operates the one in Eno Prairie. It is excellent. If you live in Eno Prairie and have a kid who <laughs> would benefit from Kumon, you should go check it out. His name is Dr. Dex. Um, That's amazing. But, you know, me and my sister, we we didn't do Kumon growing up mm-hmm. um, because Kumon was inside, like, over our, <laughs> it was in our kitchen. Right. Um, so, but I, I mean, I, I think I enjoyed it. I do have some, like, you know, traumatic memories of being punished by learning the sure. multiplication table or something, you sure. know, like you did something bad, go stand in the corner and memorize like <laughs> time table. Um, but beyond that, like learning was really fun. Like I think my parents always made learning sort of like a, a, a joyful activity. Like when you got really, really tired doing something, they're like, okay, switch. You can, you don't have to do this for, you know, until you're, you're going to hate it. Um, so yeah, learning was always something that we wanted to do, like it was self-directed and self-guided. Um, me and my sister were huge bookworms. Like we went to the library every single week. Um, what were your favorite books? I loved sci-fi as a kid. I oh, still nice. love sci-fi. Um, so I read like the Wrinkle in Time series were, you know, standard for me. I feel like I've memorized them. I also really love Little House on the Prairie. Um, what it, about it? Like, I mean, those are so clearly different genres um what pulled you both ways well i mean i think the protagonists in both are young women um who are learning about the worlds around them and this sort of like wide-eyed sort of like can't get enough optimism um and with laura ingles wilder i really loved how she was able to find a lot of joy and satisfaction in what was around her which was not that much you know and we me and my sister we did not grow up in like very extravagant sort of means, you know, like my, my, my dad was uh, a college student for a long time. And, you know, we were making, eventually we became um, middle upper, um, like a middle upper income household, but, you know, we didn't grow up with a lot of stuff. And so, you know, looking around being like, oh, we have to share a bed. Um, We were in a one bedroom apartment for a long time. Um, You know, that we like our all of our furniture, our clothes, our hand-me-downs. But I was like, oh, well, we still have way more than Laura Ingalls Wilder had. (laughs) She had a tin cup, (laughs) you know, and like a tangerine. (laughs) She really did not have that much, but she was so thankful about the things she had. And she was able to make those things that she did have feel like luxurious and like meaningful and enough. Um, And that was really fun. And the way that they categorically describe certain things and the the cadence of like the, the seasons and stuff, like the way that they would describe these things felt like it's really important as a kid, I think, to fall into these routines and rhythms and see how other people do things. Mm-hmm. Even now, reading it feels like a meditation. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. What other things were you interested in? You said your parents encouraged you to follow your interests and hobbies and stuff. So what else were you passionate uh, about growing up? I loved the internet. Okay. Specifically? <laughs> so I- Specifically, I mean, I um, as soon as we could go online, um, which I don't know, the fifth—I was probably in fifth grade when we, or fourth, fifth grade when we first got our um, those AOL uh, CDs. Do you have an embarrassing old screen name? I still have it. You still it's, have it. 
still have it. Wow. I don't know why. I, I created it in second grade. It was C-O-N-N-Y-F-O-O, which is the Skype name that I actually think I sent you. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Um, and uh, I don't have AIM anymore, unfortunately, so Skype is the <laughs> only place that this exists. Um, but, That's still yeah, not as I, bad as many kids who would choose a screen name uh, in second grade. That's yeah. I, I'm mostly impressed by that. <laughs> I don't even know where it came from. I was like, it, it really hasn't, I, maybe little bunny foo-foo, like as a second grader, like this, this, like, of course, Connie, bunny foo-foo, but I, maybe it's not, I, it's probably an inside joke with friends that I just don't remember anymore, but that was, it. um, but I loved going on the internet and I read a lot of the, um, teen girl directed, um, sort of websites at the time, like girl.com or alloy, um, and actually met the worked with the woman who founded and sort of ran these websites um, when she came through Refinery for a bit, um, and that was amazing. So your um, life went full circle. <laughs> really did it. Really did. Um, and then as soon as I could type and write, um, I started my own websites and blogs and stuff. Oh wow! Um, so I would create them on um, GeoCities. Um, I had a bunch of homesteads, which does not exist anymore. Uh -huh. um, yeah, I remember Homestead, a, yeah. Yeah, they had a, They made it really, really easy to create um, your own websites. Mm -hmm. So um, what and, were your websites about? Um, one was about Apollo Anton Ono, who oh, was... Okay, yes. Still, to this day, I have a soft spot for him. Um, <laughs> and then the other ones were very early versions of blogs. Like, it was, like, all about Connie. <laughs> and I would write daily, like diary entries um and were these I public or were these just kind of for yourself it was public mm -hmm. embarrassing i mean thank god it doesn't exist anymore <laughs> um or actually part of me is pretty sad that um i can't access them but it was like cataloging in a way that i felt like it was like my my <laughs> my ocd anxiety like um <laughs> sort of characteristics really like coming out on uh -huh. the page it's like i would list every single clothing item i owned you know and i would <laughs> okay, yeah. write, write like the <laughs> outfits that i could make like things that you would do as a neurotic child but like publicly on the internet um yeah my um my older sister she she used to have a lot of books in her room when we were growing up she still yeah. reads a ton and if i wanted to borrow a book she created a library <laughs> checkout system that i would have yeah. to sign oh, yeah. out for to borrow her books so oh, i understand sure. that oh my gosh i i tortured my little sister with things like that we had <laughs> like i created these like clubs where like if she wanted to enter the room that we shared as you know siblings like she would have to sign in to certain things like she could only use a certain pet <laughs> like yeah i don't know yeah. siblings will her. be siblings right yeah <laughs> Yeah, but I love the internet, and so, you know, it, at first they were like, is the internet just TV, except more confusing? Should we, and like, when Connie's using the internet, that means the phone isn't in use, so like, they were trying to limit my time, but then they saw that I was like, learning how to code, and like, you know, actually writing and stuff without having an assignment, you know, and that they, they really let me do it as often and as much as I wanted to, um, without supervision, which... You know, yeah, sure. Now thinking about it as adult, I'm like, wow, I'm so yeah. happy I didn't get into more trouble than, than I did. But I did some pretty awful things um, with my very, you know, elementary understanding of the Internet at the time. I'm, but yeah, so sorry, parents. Um, <laughs> then I, I did. I, I grew up playing the piano, which feels like the most Asian thing about me. Mm -hmm. um, competitive piano, too. So oh, okay. I was like really it was hardcore and intense and do you still play a lot of or do you still practice at least no 
No, I think that is the one thing where I still have beef with my parents about. You made, me, <laughs> yeah, you made me practice the piano for hours every single day, and I did not like it. Just because I was good at it doesn't that mean <laughs> right? You, know? you wanted to do it. I don't. I don't think I wanted to do it. I think I really enjoyed the sort of um, the the feeling of getting really good at something and having people recognize that I was really good at something. But the actual mechanics of practicing and playing and going to lessons, I was like so uninterested in um, in that. And I I think that it wasn't until I was surrounded by people um, a little bit older when I was in high school who really loved playing classical music. Um, that I was like, oh, wow. So <laughs> the fact that I'm missing this element means that this, I, this is, is not a potential career for me. Like just because I'm, I might be good and, you know, skillful at it, uh, doesn't mean that I should pursue this. Right. Um, right. I mean, you were treating it like you were writing every day and wanted to on your free time and stuff like that. Yeah. But I yeah. think as a kid too, you don't realize that the things that you do to procrastinate and sort of like dick around can be a career. Um, adults talk about their jobs like it's the thing you don't want to do so I was like oh maybe I have to do the thing that I do but I'm good at um but thank goodness that that's not the case <laughs> right right so you end up at UC Berkeley did you choose to go to UC Berkeley I mean was that your first choice to go to UC Berkeley did you want to go to California did you want to get out of Minnesota well yeah I think that was my impetus I applied to quite a few schools um UC Berkeley was not my first choice and I didn't get into I think my first, second, or third choices, I, I was fairly ambitious with what colleges I wanted to go to without actually understanding what I wanted to do in college, why I wanted to go to those schools. It was sort of like I was just chasing the, the name. Um, and then when it came down to it, I chose the school that was furthest away from Minnesota, um, <laughs> okay. which and it ended up being UC Berkeley, and I had not ever visited the campus before. I had oh, wow. barely spent any time in Northern California. I was like, this one, I think. Uh, and I just went with it, and I'm very thankful that I did because I the things that I learned and sort of the environment that I was able to do this learning in at Berkeley was was amazing, and I'm, I feel so thankful that I didn't pick something else. <laughs> but it was totally a fluke. So when you went to Berkeley... Did you major in um, journalism, literature, writing, or what did you major there? I actually made, well, I started out um, applying to the School of Architecture. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Which, uh, yeah, that was uh, probably ill-advised. Um, I had <laughs> taken architecture classes in high school at the uh, University of Minnesota, and I was pretty good at it. Like, I was I was good at drawing, like, understood how, like, you know, the, the art part of it was fun for me. I could do math. Um, so like the, the technical sort of like math thinky logical part of it was also good. Um, and then I had a really um, intense conversation with a professor who was like, oh, I recognize that you're talented at this. Let me tell you what it means to be an architect. And she scared the shit out of me. I was like, what do you mean I have to go to school for this many years? What do you mean the starting salary is like this low? Right. I was like, this is not. And she was like, do you spend your time like looking at buildings or learning about architects and whatever during your spare time. And I was like, absolutely not. I was like, I read fashion magazines during my spare time. And I'm like, I, I work on my, my silly blog. And she was like, well, that's something you should think about then. I was like, oh my gosh. Oh no. Um, so when I got to Berkeley, I spent the first semester trying to change colleges. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> and like reorienting my majors. And so I ended up majoring in political science and, um, mass communications, which eventually became media studies. Um, 
And I really honestly chose those two because I looked at um, <laughs> the sort of credits I had already fulfilled from P classes and the time I had spent at uh, University of Minnesota and all these random things. And I was like, which majors doesn't make the most sense to, to major in given that I've completed all these credits right, already. So which is most efficient <laughs> to get. Yeah, for the I know. Stage. It's like it's such a embarrassing sort of bad way to think about it. But really, I was like, I can double major really easily in three years, given that I've done all of this other work already. Wow. I was like, I'm like, I'm not a school person. <laughs> I like wow. I really bad when um, there are classes I have to attend and forced readings and stuff like that. I was like, I'm just I'm not a school person. Want to get it over with as quickly as possible and just start working because at that time I was like I realized that you could do blogging as a job and I, I just want to do that. Um, so yeah, Berkeley was. I I think I got a lot out of my classes, but I also was not a very good student. What did you do right after? So you graduate. Mm-hmm. You found um, to be I, a blogger professionally. Professionally, yeah, a professional blogger it was so wild. Um, I had done a series of internships um, in between um, semesters uh, during the summers um, around the Bay Area. And then I spent one one summer interning in New York um, where I really just got I just I drank the Kool-Aid. And I was like, I, I need to be in New York. I need to be working in a, uh, a publication and I need to be working digital. I was like I had done the print internship and really didn't found, find myself there. And I was like, I'm good at writing online and I need to do that. And I need to find someone who can pay me. Um, and when I when I was graduating, I was working at this um, startup in uh, San Francisco called Chictopia, and uh, it was like a a platform for personal style bloggers. Um, and in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, that was like still a very up and coming, very new right. concept. Right. Influencer Influencers. Like, yeah. That word didn't even exist yet, you know. Um, and I really saw how powerfully and effectively independent like single people could have on you know the, the fashion industry coming from the bottom um and that really that, that that really inspired me i was like this there's something really cool here that's happening that hasn't happened before in this kind of way um and refinery 29 was honestly like hand like hand to god like my favorite website at the uh -huh. time um still is i'm biased <laughs> Um, so when I moved to New York, I was like, if Refinery29 ever has an opening, I'm like, I'm putting everything that I have into this application. And they did a couple months later and I applied and I got the job Man. and I have been here ever since. Just like that. <laughs> uh, so your mom was a book publisher. Uh, did Do you think that that kind of influenced you being into um, editorial? And I mean, you're doing like the new age of book publishing in a, in a sort yeah. of way, right? I honestly didn't even think about it until I got the job. I was, and she was, and you realize that I was also in publishing. And I was like, huh? And she was like, and your grandma too was an editor. I was like, what? That's so funny. <laughs> because like, yeah, I mean, when she came to the United States, like she, the, the, the language skills, like she just, it just didn't translate. So right. she became an accountant. And so my entire life, I was always thinking about my mother as an accountant and not a publisher, which is probably incorrect. Uh, to think about her that way, um, but yeah, no, it's in, I guess it's in my blood. Um, <laughs> but it's it, it's funny because um, you know it's publishing and writing and editing is such a language based thing that when I'm talking to my grandma about stuff like this, like and I'm trying to use Chinese to explain to my Chinese is just so inadequate. Like I I just can't explain. She's always like, "Are you sure you write for a living?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
I'm like, yes, my English is so much better than my Chinese, which I'm sure. Um, but it's, we're unable to communicate on that level where we can really like, you know, talk about the Get industry the in, a, in yeah. a real meaningful way, which is, I feel so just bummed about. Mm -hmm. um, but that's on me. <laughs> I have to learn, I have to get better. Looking through your Refinery29 uh, credits, I mean, you have such a wide variety of uh, content you've been writing for. Fashion sticks out a lot. So did you yeah. start in fashion or did you become passionate about fashion when you moved into New York? I always liked fashion. Um, and most, I, I can't really even tell you why. I think I, think I liked clothes more than I liked fashion with a capital F, like fat the fashion industry. Right, right. Um, and a lot of the <laughs> reality TV shows I was watching at the time, um, and the sort of media I was consuming, which were, were your really, favorite like, reality shows? I mean, gosh, The Hills. Okay. Was I think had a disturbingly strong influence <laughs> on me. Um, it, I mean, and their their medium was fashion. They worked at Teen Vogue, a fashion publication, um, and it. I just thought that if I wanted to work in media, I needed to work in fashion. And that was the one thing that I could bring to the table. I could talk about fashion in a way that felt new and modern mm -hmm. and relevant to, uh, at the time, a 2009 consumer, you know? Sure. Um, and I understood that what I was, the way that I saw things and the way that I talked about fashion and the way that my peers online in, you know, blogs at the time talked about fashion was so different than what I was reading in proper magazines. Mm -hmm. So I knew I had an edge there. Um, and then beyond that, I just like, <laughs> when it comes to the other subjects that media people are you know, supposed to be interested in, movies, music, TV shows, I'm just so not. Like, I just really, I, I'm scared of a lot of movies. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have too much anxiety to, <laughs> to watch certain TV shows, you know? Like, I have no patience with music. And I was like, really, the only medium that I'm good at is fashion. And it's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, and thank, thank, thank God for that, actually. <laughs> well, so you say you don't watch TV, but there is an article that piqued my interest. What would Carrie, uh -huh. Samantha, Miranda, and Charlotte wear today oh my uh, of, of Sex and the City? So uh -huh. uh, did you watch Sex and the City? I did. I didn't start watching Sex and the City until um, the movie came out, actually. Oh, okay. So like you were later. Yeah. yeah. I was later. Only, I mean, I did not have access to HBO. Like, so I think I started watching it by torrenting them. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, I just, I, I, I think I just finally recently got access to HBO, but I, I mean, I just didn't, I couldn't see, I couldn't watch it. And the things that I would watch were the sanitized sort of versions for TBS. Right, right, which, like, are, is, which is not the same. It's not the same. And I was like, this is, nothing makes sense. The plot, like, is all twisty. And right. Like, you know, um, I was like, I don't like this show. But then watched <laughs> the real version. I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah, yeah. Um, Which girl do you relate to the most? Oh my god, none of none of them. None of them. Absolutely none of them. Yeah. Um, I I really like the way that they talked. I think that the my main takeaway is that like you could be friends that were you could have your best friends could be combative with you and challenge you know your ideas and your assumptions and the way you live your life and call you out for being a hypocrite um but also support you in those <laughs> in your hypocrisy um it was the first time i had seen people talk like that and it really like made me excited um just like the the the, the culture in in Minnesota is very like you just don't, you don't ruffle people's feathers you know? <laughs> even if they're your friends even if it's your family you just like you you nod even when you disagree you're like okay well 
I'll think about that later, but I won't tell you to my your face why I think that's bad, you know? Um, but seeing like four New Yorkers um, have really combative conversations that got really deep. I mean, they, these were deep conversations that like over brunch, like in public. I was like, oh, if people talk like that, like I want in, you know? Um, and I, I mean, maybe I, I, I tried to live my life according to some of those things uh, when I first moved to New York and it definitely colored the way that I thought that New York was supposed to go. Um, but I think I really value the, the way that they showed that women can have conversations and talk about things that were important to them, like their jobs, their relationships, um, mm -hmm. their sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, even though I don't agree with everything that they were talking about, uh -huh. but I like the way and the way they talked about it. Sure. Yeah. And I think, um, especially, Obviously, we just said it came out 20 years ago. It was so forward in terms of the type of television that was on, especially okay. focused around four women. They all had their own mm -hmm. jobs. Yep. They're all successful in their jobs. Uh, for the most part, they were all um, you know, choosing the relationships they were in and, and weren't in and things like that. Uh, and, yeah. e and even now, I think a lot of TV shows um, don't tackle some like issues that Sex and the City was able to do well before um, even now, like as obviously in like the, the Me Too era and the rise mm -hmm. of like, you know, feminism 2.0 or 3.0 or whatever uh, edition we're <laughs> yeah. in right now, um, yeah. shows are still catching up to do what they were able to do. And I, I think it's um, pretty underappreciated because I think people think of Sex and the City as like this like girly show when in reality it was, mm -hmm. I think, um, incredibly influential uh, in the way oh, women yeah. are portrayed on TV. Not only the way that women are portrayed on TV, I think the way that women live their lives, like the conversations people feel comfortable having just out loud in public among, you know, people at work even, um, it's because of sex in the city. And I don't feel like I'm going on a limb saying this. And I think that younger people might not recognize just how shocking it was to see this sort of stuff um, on television and just how much it did do for culture. I think the way that we talk about sex in the city now can, can be really superficial. Like, oh, she couldn't have afforded all the all those clothes or like, oh, Mr. Big, whatever, whatever. But the way that they reckoned with culture was, I think, staggering. It was it was super influential. Um, so, I mean, it's a it's a discredit to the show, um, the way that we talk about it and the sort of the flippant way that we talk about it. But I think that during the 20th anniversary, I saw a lot of really thoughtful um, work stemming from it. Yeah, my my wife is a huge uh, Sex and the City fan, and she just kept sending me articles like, you know, here's yeah. another one, here's another one. And I think it's um, I think it's good that uh, people were able had a chance to kind of go back and revisit it and re mm -hmm. um, assess how they can look at it, so maybe other people can start watching it, right? Because um, people yeah. our generation, I guess, girls is is likely the equivalent. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, me personally, I, I was never a big fan of girls. Yeah, um, I always thought Sex and City, which is like miles beyond <laughs> what that show was. So I'm glad it's getting a little more. Um, a little more appreciation there. Uh, yeah, totally. a, another article that I really, that I think I actually probably reached out to you about in the first place mm -hmm. was when you wrote about cultural appropriation for 10 years. So, so you're writing about it for a while, um, mm. obviously, as it says in there. Um, what did you, and you, you say you got things wrong. Yeah. Can you summarize what, what that was about? Yeah. I mean, the, the 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 word cultural appropriation, I remember when I first came across that word and I was like, yes, this perfectly captures the sort of annoyance that I feel um, when it comes to people who are not my culture, like not who are not born within my culture, sort of wearing my culture without knowing about my culture. Um, and at the time, too, it wasn't just that, like, you know, 
a blonde woman will be able to wear a cheap how and you know look cool doing it it was that i could not wear one and look cool i would look <laughs> like i was like you know like working at some, like cultural fair or right, something right. you know you look like, like an it's like yeah well not even i'm like in costume i like work at like a chinese restaurant like it's like it's like you know it was too on the nose and it wouldn't look like fashion it would look like a costume when i wore it um and so my whole thing at the time was that like you know Cultural appropriation is bad because it is a false attempt to actually connect with another person's culture. Because you ask these women, like, "What? That's a beautiful dress. Like, where did you get it?" They'd be like, "Like, oh, uh, maybe at the time it was like Delia's.com, or I got it for Forever 21 or something." You know, like, "Oh, do you know what it is?" They're like, "Oh, it's yeah, it's an Asian dress." And like that—that that would be the extent of their knowledge. And so my thing is like, that would be an opportunity to talk to someone about about what it is and what the culture is. And I always thought that, you know, if people are already interested in these sort of like de decorative aspects of people's cultures, like that's, that's an open door. That means that they can walk through that door and sort of learn, you know, connect themselves and engage with another culture in a deeper, more meaningful way. And so when they do say like, what are you wearing? Oh, like I know the word for it. You know, right. I know the history of it. Like I have and I know this because I have friends who, you know, are from this culture or like right. family members who are from this culture. Um, that was always my intention. But like the way that this sort of rhetoric has sort of unfolded is so chilling that like now it's not that you don't see a blonde woman wearing a cheap out. Is that like now when she wears one, she is so deliberately like, this is my free speech. This is I'm able to do whatever I want to. And I'm still not going to learn about this other culture. It's defiant. Like it's a defiant sort of like I get to do whatever I want to. And you can't tell me what I should know, what I shouldn't know. Or on the other hand, it's like someone who actually has a legitimate interest in this thing is scared to now even express that interest because she doesn't want to seem like she's appropriating or he, they are appropriating anyway, which I, that's also like, that's so wrong. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like political correctness has like kind of swung in extremes in both ways. Right. I think as a result of like the political climate we're in and just the way um, people are trying to be more aware of things, right? It almost has a negative effect on both angles where people who don't want to come off like they are appropriating something or insensitive are too scared to do it. And then on yeah. the complete other side, it's like, no, like this is my first amendment, right? Like I'm going to do whatever, <laughs> whatever I want to yeah. do. Yeah. And honestly, like I, there, neither of them is a good way to correct way to live. Yeah. Um, but it's just like who's responsible for creating this kind of culture. And I felt like I really might have been part of this like refinery. When we started covering cultural appropriation, we were maybe one of the first mass media sites, like pop media sites to talk about this kind of very academic idea uh -huh. in a way that, you know, made sense to consumers and, you know, mod like regular people. Um, and, but the way that I was talking about it was very much a reflection of the sort of way you wrote online at the time, which was like full of snark, full of like, um, very dismissive, you crack a bunch of jokes, or you became really sanctimonious about the way you're talking about things. And then, like, I just feel like the implied anger and outrage within it just made people are like, oh, this is a touchy subject, I should just ignore it completely. And that's not, that's not helpful. Um, this was actually, at, after many years of writing about it, I spent many years avoiding writing about it, because I just felt like it was it's the same thing over and over and over again. It made me upset. Um, it made everyone who read it upset. I was like, <laughs> what's the point of upsetting everybody? Um, and then I was assigned a story um, to during Asian uh, Pacific American Heritage Month um, 
in May to, to write about cultural appropriation, especially in regards to that high school student who wore yeah, a the prom dress. Yeah. I, yeah, the prom dress. And I was just like, no, <laughs> like, <laughs> I really don't want to do this. And I and I gave my editor my reason. I was like, I don't want to do this because it's not helpful. And she was like, explain what you mean. And I explained it in much um, worse terms than what I explore in the article. But she was like, well, that's the story. That's what you have to write. And I like uh, bitched and moaned the whole time. I was like, I just really don't want to do this. But the more people I talk to, the more I realized that like, you know, this is something that just people don't want to engage with. And it's so important to get it right. And no one is willing to get it right because it just feels taboo in a lot of ways. Um, so I put I, I put a lot of time and thought into it. Um, and I'm actually really happy to see um you know, the, the, the kinds of people who are engaging with this topic, um, it was not what I expected. It was a lot of older white men who are sharing the <laughs> story, which I find really surprising. And not that I need like an older white man to um, legitimize what sure. I write, but that is not my the audience that I have in my head when I'm writing a lot right. of my stories. Especially on Refinery29, right? Especially on Refinery29, like the person that I'm writing for in my head does not look like that but the fact that it was able to break out of that my perceived audience and because of just the, the I guess the sheer impact of the ideas presented in it um, and the sort of respect that I have for you know the people who are just willing to talk about this um, it, I, I, it made it surprised me um, about you know who who were the, the people who this article ended up being being for right right now in music um, I'm, I'm particularly very passionate about music. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of, you know, cultural appropriation. I think you might talk about um, Iggy Azalea yeah. in your article as well. Um, but something I kind of struggle with, and particularly in music, and you might think the same way in fashion, is that I believe there is a difference between homage and appropriation. Mm -hmm. um, like Bruno Mars, he got in a little bit of heat, I think, a couple months ago because people in the African-American community were saying he was just... Uh, you know, appropriating um, Motown sounds and R&B sounds uh -huh. to to get hit singles when to me, and I'm not even the biggest Bruno, Bruno Mars fan, um, but to me it came off as like he was paying homage to those who came before him. Um, uh -huh. do, do you see a difference there? Oh yeah, huge difference. I don't even think homage is the right word for uh -huh. it though because if you're... A, a skilled sort of member of an industry and the craft that you do is good and you're good at it, then I don't think that you should think that, you know, just because you're the, the, the culture that you grow up when it isn't the inherent, the, the culture that the music was developed in or the art form was developed in, that means you can't touch it. That's like, that's actually what fascism is, you know? Um, I just think, though, that if you're going to engage with it and produce something, you should show your sources, you know, yeah, like yeah. give give props and give um, due to, to the people that actually contributed to it. Don't steal riffs. Don't don't think that, you know, uh, you're the first one to have come up with certain things, because that that just means that just shows that you don't actually know what you're talking about, you know. Um, and Bruno Mars does a wonderful job about, you know, paying it forward and acknowledging what came came before. Um, I think that when you see people who get criticized for cultural appropriation in certain art forms, it's because the, the art that they've created is bad, you know. <laughs> right. I, I, it it looks la like if it looks lazy or something like that. It'll look lazy or it's just like it's it's not creative or it's, it doesn't actually move anything forward. I just, I just I think that 
then, then the easy thing to accuse them of is cultural appropriation when the actual thing that you're mad about is the fact that it's just bad art, you know? I just, I don't really think that, like, your your background or your experiences um, preclude you from engaging with certain art forms. Like, that's, that's so silly to me. Um, but you should, if you really are engaged with a thing or you really sit, claim that you have an authority about a, a topic or you should you know, should be seen as an authority about a topic, that means that you should know what you're talking about. And oftentimes, like, people don't know what they're talking about. Like, when, when it comes to the Nicki, like, Nicki Minaj and her Chung Lee um, single, like, and I, and we commissioned a piece um, for Refinery29 about this exact um, subject, uh-huh. which that is was that, like, like, her SNL performance? Her SNL performance and sort of the, the costuming and, um, I don't know, the, the visual sort of, things that she was doing to, to celebrate her Chung Lee persona, it was very obvious she didn't know what she was talking about. Like, if she really was like, I am endlessly inspired by Chung Lee, like, yeah. <laughs> I, like, I'm going to use this reference and use it accurately, like, great, that's fine. Or if she's like, I'm going to comment on Chung Lee in some way. But it's it, a mismatch of sort of references that she was pulling. She was like, this is in honor of my um, Japanese great-grandfather. It was like, well, Chung Lee is a Chinese you know, a fictitious Chinese superhero character, right. character um, developed by a Japanese, like, uh, you know, programmer, but like, company, this is yeah. a Chinese person, gaming yeah. company, um, within the, the actual song, like the references that she makes are all from all over the world. You know, she has like, um, coolie hats that are not Chinese nor Japanese, you know, like she has ninjas, like it just makes it, it was like a grab bag of references that really was embarrassing for her because it showed that she wasn't like a cosplay Chung Lee sort of super nerd, which I'm all for. Um, and she just fundamentally, like if I were her great grandparent, <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, this is how you're choosing to honor my heritage. You know, <laughs> I'd be like, what are you doing? Um, so it's, it's kind of laziness. And like, that's, that's what I feel like a lot of people are complaining about. If she did a really fantastic job with it like yep. i think kendrick lamar does a really fantastic job at you know um with the kung fu his... kenny persona yeah. Yep. yeah i mean he loves kung fu he loves the sort of like the the cinematography yeah of the visuals kung... i mean it looked i mean he even had like a shaw brothers opening um yeah. for his show and like yeah the mm-hmm. the audio and um yeah. yeah it was all very good yeah is it can he not do it just because he's not asian like no way like this is something that he knows a lot about and he like brings him a lot of joy he's doing it in a way that makes it very clear that he knows what he's talking about right like there's no problem there it's good Nicki minaj's song was bad (laughs) um (laughs) so before we run out of time here uh your most recent article um is about uh anthony bourdain who you know passed away just last friday um yeah. i i'm a huge anthony bourdain fan i got to see him speak and thought he was amazing love all his tv shows um in your article the pain and privilege of traveling with anthony bourdain um you know you want to summarize that a little bit and and talk about your thoughts on him sure um i hate i don't like writing obituaries for obvious reasons but one of, one of the thi- one of the things or maybe that makes me a bad media person is that i don't look at celebrities as um idols like i have i don't have an ounce of idol worship in me like i I see celebrities as people who are really good at a certain thing whether it's singing or acting or whatever and so like i don't ascribe a lot of like morals or i don't know (laughs) wishes and hopes and dreams on them except for anthony bourdain um 
which I think is a lot of people, right? Because he was sort of the yeah. he was sort of the um, the anti celebrity, right? In in a lot of ways, he was. He was. I think um, uh, Helen Rosner from the New Yorker really put it well. She was like, he was the most famous person, probably like in, in many senses, many senses, he was so so famous, and yet he was not a celebrity. Um, yeah, no, my, my husband came into the bedroom early in the morning because he had to get up to, to write. And he was like, Anthony Bourdain just died. And it was just like, I, I, it, I went back to sleep. I was like, nope, I I'm not ready to engage with this. I'm like, this, it, he is probably one person that I've thought about more off. Like, I have spent more time with Anthony Bourdain having never met him than maybe <laughs> any other person in my entire life. Right. Like, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I've seen every single episode of his shows. I've read his writing. I think about like the philosophies that he had and the way that he did things. Um, and it informs the way that I do my own work. Um, I mean, not, I, I hate making things about making things personal when it comes to celebrity deaths, but I think that the, the amount of people who shared their own personal stories afterwards about how, you know, he changed the way that they travel or they eat or they, um, you know, think about their own industries and, you know, how they are as a, um, a man even um, was really striking. And, you know, when I set out to do um, this uh, travel docuseries for Friday Night 29 called Style Out There, I literally said the words, I want this to be no reservations but for clothing. And I think that that's a cliche now among you know, <laughs> documentary teams, they hear the word, I want, it, I want it to be no reservations, but about technology or about right. sex or about whatever. But I think it's such a compliment to him because it, what it means in shorthand is that I want to use the sort of vocabulary of fashion or music or whatever it is, or food in his case, to talk about the human issues that feel difficult to talk about at face value because they're either too depressing, too complicated, it feels like homework, it feels like something you should do, but you're going to do later. Um, but he made it entertaining um, and he made it feel necessary and urgent and also like optimistic too. And I think that's really a testament to, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no. Yeah. And I love that you use the word optimistic because my, um, my favorite thing about watching Parts Unknown is mm -hmm. whenever he would go to a country and speak with the locals, he would always ask them, you know, are you optimistic about your city yeah. or your country? Yes. And and that like um, that really like hits hits to the core for me personally, because I think he obviously now very obviously he always has had personal demons. He was able to go to like, you know, Beirut and some really war torn countries and people in really dire situations yeah. asking this question. And most of the time, the people he was with always had optimistic outlooks and and he always had optimistic outlooks and like found the beauty in whatever yeah. part of the world he was in yeah i mean he never never punched down which i think was the great thing he was a pretty caustic critical um pessimistic man in a lot of senses but it always came from just like people who had a lot of power who didn't deserve that power who wielded that those that power in like unjust ways and like that's what his focus and target always was and i always admired him for that like he had strong scruples and was willing to you know not accept money 
not get further opportunities, like derail his career in certain ways because he stuck to those principles. And it's like, it's, it's a very like Gen X kind of thing. Like don't sell out, sell out, like right. stick it to the man, right. which I think is like quality that millennials and Gen Z like have lost in a uh -huh. lot of ways. Like we're like, Oh yeah, no, get paid, get your own, scam the system. If the be system extra. is scamming you, yeah. <laughs> yeah, be extra, but like do what you got to do to make it in this world. And he was just like, but you still have principles that you can't compromise. Otherwise no one will take you seriously. And I like, I, I really admire that, but I don't know. He was a super phenomenal person. And I think really changed the way that we do any sort of like pop anthropology. Um, his language is food, mine is fashion, um, but it's in, in the way that everyone has to participate on those two things. Like, I think that um, that's really cool, but I hated writing it. <laughs> well, um, it, it's a great article, so I encourage everyone else to read it. So um, we're at a, about time here. Where can people find you online? How can they keep up with all the great writing and such you're doing? Oh, uh, thank you. Um, I'm on Twitter, I think, most consistently. Um, my Twitter handle is Connie Wang, not Connie Fu. <laughs> my Instagram is Codcon Wang. Um, could not get Connie Wang. Um, and then um, I write mostly for Refinery29. Um, so you can find my stories on refinery29.com. Um, yeah, that's great. That, that was a really good conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Of